to the Colossians this morning. We're going to finish the end of chapter 1, read all through chapter 2. We're continuing in this book. This is a, a letter that Paul wrote to a young church plant that was struggling because there was false teaching, teaching that made people question whether Christ's life of obedience and his death on the cross was sufficient for their salvation. They were being taught, no, that's not all. There's, there's more, right? Real Christians have to fill in the blank, right? Paul wants these Christians and us to be mature in Christ. That's what this section of this letter is about. And that doesn't happen the way these false teachers and Colossae tell them that it does. So with that said, let's read now, picking up in chapter 1 at verse 24. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on an asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are being used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." This is the word of the Lord. When you apply for a job, you put together a resume. You you draft a list of your experience and accomplishments to sell yourself as being worthy of the job. You may even embellish a little bit about said accomplishments. Your resume is supposed to show you in the most favorable light. People tell you what you have to have on it. There's whole courses taught on this, right? What people have to see in order to accept you. You have to make sure you stand out amongst the crowd. You have to establish yourself as authority in your particular field. You have to establish yourself as trustworthy, hardworking, well-qualified, right? And you can't have gaps in employment either. That's a blemish. And you got to list enough jobs, but not too many, because it looks like you won't be able to hold a job any one place for too long. These are all things people tell you you must have in order to put a, a well-put-together resume in order for you to get hired for the job. The main idea of the sermon this morning is you can't apply to heaven with two resumes. You can't apply it to heaven with two resumes. You can't have Christ's resume and yours. Your credentials do not and cannot qualify you. The obedience and suffering of Christ alone qualifies you. Christ alone became a man to obey and suffer in our place so that we would be acceptable in God's sight. So why, why is it we always find ourselves trying to appease God? We should try to please him with godly living, yes, but appease him? That's impossible. But that's exactly what people are inclined to do, to, to warrant their acceptance by God through their merits and not on the merits of Christ alone. That's what Paul was addressing in the church of Colossae. They were losing sight of the source of their salvation because false teachers were in there trying to help them build up their resumes, right? Do this, don't do that. Get this training, take this course, follow this program. Paul says, no. All you could ever want or require is found in Christ alone. These people were being taught they they needed this greater spiritual experience, that there was this hidden information that could be unlocked for them if they just did X, Y, Z. They weren't assured of their freedom from the power of sin, and their hope was deferred because people were telling them Christ is not sufficient. Paul says he is. 
And that's the theme of this whole letter I've mentioned before. This whole, the theme of this whole letter to the Colossians is on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Here in these verses, Paul shows us Christ alone is the source of knowledge and wisdom, of life and freedom, and of hope and security. Those are our three points for you this morning. Christ alone is the source of knowledge and wisdom, of life and freedom, and hope and security. Knowledge and wisdom. Verses 25 through 28, Paul says, The ministry given to him by God is to make the word of God fully known. There's nothing hidden anymore. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, he says, has now been revealed to his saints. He says the riches and glory of this mystery is Christ in you. Verse 28, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ comes from knowing Christ, not knowing about Christ, but knowing Christ. And it doesn't come about, this maturity doesn't come about the way the false teachers in Colossae are saying it does. It was not uncommon during this time for people to be peddlers of mysteries. This this was a big part of the ancient pagan practices at that time that were kind of weaving their way into this young Christian church, people would offer these greater spiritual insights to people, often for a fee, and initiate them into their inner circle of understanding. So if you could prove yourself, and the price was right, you could be in the know. What's funny is Paul says his ministry that God's given to him that's for us Paul says his ministry is about offering the knowledge and wisdom of all the mysteries of the entire cosmos for free. That's striking to them. It reminds me of a song by a very talented Christian band called the Grey Havens. Make very few recommendations from the pulpit. That's one that I will make to you. Very good. They've got this song called Train Station. And it's all, you know, it's all a metaphor, right? But there's, there's all these people standing at this train station waiting for a train to come and take them where they want to go. And all these conductors are shouting out. They're saying, buy your tickets, save your souls. But there's this one conductor, Jesus, who says, you, come follow me. I'll buy your tickets and I'll pay your fees because I know what you cost. And believe me, without this train, you will be lost. And he goes on to tell him, he says, throw your tickets on the floor. I'll give you mine instead. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, that you can have full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. You can have all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Jesus is the way to where you want to go. Paul says, I say all this that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Don't buy the world's tickets. They will not take you where you want to go. 
Don't be shaken by what these false teachers are teaching you. It may sound good and reasonable, but it's not. You know, in our day, false teachers in the church will tell you things like, you know, if Jesus was around today, he'd be a progressive. He'd be progressive. I agree. He would be progressive. And we should be progressive too as Christians. The question that we have to be able to ask ourselves is, what are we progressing towards? Right? Are we, are we, how are we measuring progress? By God's standard or our own? You know, other people may say, well, you know, what it means to be a Christian is to be conservative. Jesus was a conservative. Again, I'd say I'd agree, and all of us should be conservative too. But we have to ask ourselves the hard questions. What are we trying to preserve? And based on God's standard, not our own, is it worth preserving? The Jews and Pharisees wanted to preserve lots of things. Jesus didn't. Wading through these things requires knowledge and wisdom, and that knowledge and wisdom has been revealed by God to his saints in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And look, we've got a lot, we got a lot of advantages. We've got a leg up on, on, on the Colossians. We've got the whole Bible, all 66 books. And in this world that Christ is redeeming, it's easier now than ever to get your hands on a copy so that we can learn his revealed will for us. Proverbs 15, 14 says, A discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Where do we get wisdom? Where will you find knowledge? Christ alone is the source of knowledge and wisdom. Therefore, Paul says in verse 6, As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The best lie always has a hint of truth in it, doesn't it? So it makes it believable. The idea that times have changed and we've learned so much about ourselves that we can throw off all of these archaic ideas and antiquated social norms in the Bible. This idea is everywhere. And it's being taught in churches this morning. It's always a yes, but, isn't it? Yes, the, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, but what's wrong with two people loving each other? Yes, the Bible says God made man male and female. But now we know that's just a label assigned to us at birth, but we can really be either one or both or, or none. Right? We, just, we know better now. Do we? Have we become so wise? I had a conversation with two old friends Friday night. One of the guys I hadn't seen in eight years. But they were, uh, they, were, they were passing through. They were on their way to Charlotte to see the Georgia-Clemson game up there. Go dogs, by the way. Um, but I hadn't seen, I, we hadn't been together like this in about eight years. And we're sitting out on my back porch talking to about two o'clock in the morning. Of course, you know, like I'm trying to work Jesus in the conversation, right? 
And so we, we get talking about some stuff, some important issues. And one of the guys says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus. I just hate the church. And I said, help, help me out with that. Because the Bible says the church is his bride. Like, I don't know how you can be cool with Jesus and talk bad about his wife. <laughs> if you talk bad about my wife, we ain't going to be friends, you know? And he goes, well, you know, I just think, you know, the, the church and the Bible and stuff need to be, like, evolving with people because we've, we've evolved and think different things and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, why does he need to do that? He's eternal. God doesn't change. You know, he's constant when we are not, you know? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And it was interesting. Every time he started to try to kind of step away from that and talk about something, you know, and you, you can do this too with people that you know that you're talking to and sharing the gospel with, point at their feet, okay? What are they standing on to say those things that they believe about the world? Right? What are they standing on? They're borrowing capital from your biblical worldview in order to talk about things the way that they do, about injustice, about fairness, about how we ought to treat other people, right? So it was a really interesting conversation that unfolded. I was very thankful for that time together. But mature Christians, they live by God's standard and not man's. That's what mature Christians do. Because you can get out here and go flapping off at the gums about everything you think Christians ought to be, right? Or we can go to God's word and understand what it is that makes a mature Christian. Mature Christians look at what's popular and what's in vogue in the world with a great deal of skepticism. They are rooted and built up in Christ and have no need to go with the flow. They don't need more mysteries to be revealed about what God has already spoken. Christ alone is not only the source of knowledge and wisdom, he's the source of life and freedom that everyone you know is clamoring for. Life and freedom, verses 8 through 15. Paul is addressing something on the Colossians' minds, something the false teachers are trying to sell them as the power over the flesh, the power over evil forces. And in order to be really free from sin, you had to beat it out of yourself, right? You had to, you had to cut it out somehow, physically. Now keep reminding you, as we go through the series on Colossians, the letter is all about the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Last time we talked about an aspect of Christ's atonement called Christus Victor. Christ is the conqueror. It highlights the fact that not only did Christ obey and suffer in our place, he also conquered evil and death. That's part of what he did on the cross. There's a real cosmic significance to that that we tend to overlook. The Colossians certainly were overlooking it. Paul says, Christ has taken care of your sin problem. So he's trying to get across to him. He's taken care of your sin problem. Where there still is sin in your life, turn to Christ. Not, not to, what's he say there, verse 8? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Go to the source. He goes on to say all the stuff about what Christ has already done for you. 
All right, catch, catch all the past tense language here. He says, you have been filled in him, verse 10. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, verse 11. You were buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith, verse 12. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but made alive by God and having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, verse 14. There's your sin problem, Paul says. Nailed to the cross. It's done. It's finished. You weren't filled with him, now you are. You were guilty, now you're not. You were dead, but now you're alive. What about the evil powers, right? Remember, that's part of their issue too. So what must they do to ward off evil? Verse 15, he disarmed, speaking of Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, I want you to get a picture of how that's hitting them, right? What, what, what visual they have as they're reading these words or hearing them read aloud when they receive Paul's letter, okay? What they're imagining here is a, a Roman general who is humiliating his captives, the other generals of foreign armies, rivals, right? And he's parading them behind his chariots as he's returning home, okay? So they're getting this, this, this image, right? Getting this idea in their heads of all of, saying all these things that you're still afraid of out here, here's where you need to see them. Lined up single file in a chain gang, hands tied, heads hung in defeat, walking behind King Jesus. Christ disarmed them and put them to open shame. That's a how about those evil, evil, evil powers. There was a cosmic struggle. You've got to get this, okay? There was a cosmic struggle that began at the incarnation of Jesus. God became a man. The man that was promised in the garden. Satan was there. He heard the promise. Now the man is here. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. Now the man is here. And then Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, and for the first time, a man is able to withstand and resist Satan. And through his death and the place of sinners, Satan was stripped of his power to hold death and separation from God over our heads. This past tense language of Christ already having been resurrected, already having accomplished this reconciliation with God, gives us life and freedom. No guilt remains. No spiritual powers reign over us any longer. Christ alone is the source of life and freedom. Christ alone is also the source of our hope and security in this life and the next. That's my final point. Hope and security, verses 16 through 23 there. 
Paul says, therefore, in other words, since all of that is true, let no one pass judgment on you regarding what you eat or drink or how you keep certain days or festivals. He says all those things were just shadows of what was to come, and he has come. The substance of all those things is Christ. It belongs to Christ, verse 17. And he goes on to say, let no one disqualify you, right? Insisting on these ascetic practices, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to Christ. Don't let him do it to you. You know, remember part of the religious program being prescribed at this time was these ascetic practices, the beating the sin out of you, depriving yourself of food, or only eating certain, certain things. And they were told they had to pay homage to and worship angels if they wanted their protection. Pray to these angels for this particular kind of perfection or, or, or uh, protection. And it's ultimately manipulation tactics that they're promoting. They're trying to appease angels that they believed influenced their fate somehow. They wanted to overcome the supernatural powers that controlled their lives, but says, but Paul tells them, no one can do that but Christ, and he's already done it. They were appealing to spiritual beings and angels through visions and rules to find security in a world of uncertainty. Because that's what humans do. It's what we do. But by doing that, they were questioning the sufficiency of Christ. By reaching for connection and this hope and security that they were longing for, they were losing their connection to the only source of hope and security, in Christ alone. And Paul asks them there in verse 20, why do you do that? Well, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are being used up. What's the silly little game you're playing, Paul says? And he knows the answer. He knows that they believe it is the means to spiritual maturity. Here's something to catch here, okay? Here's where you can relate to these people. Their intentions were good, Right? We can put a lot of blame, a lot of fault on the false teachers. They should not have been teaching and promoting what they were doing. They were leading people astray, right? But these young Christians that have placed their faith in Christ, like, they're thinking these people are authorities and experts on the subject. They're hearing these things that they're saying. They're confused. They're harassed. They have good intentions. What they want to do is grow up in their faith. They want to take it seriously. They think it is a big deal. So their intentions are good. But Paul says, no, see, people who take their faith seriously, those who are maturing in the faith, understand what Christ has accomplished for them. They have died with Christ and been made alive in him. They understand that they were once slaves to sin, separated from God, but now free from sin and united to God through faith in Christ. If I'm losing you, now's the time to perk back up. A rule-oriented lifestyle is not the means to true spiritual growth. It's just not. 
I don't care how practical it is or how accomplished it makes you feel. A rule-oriented lifestyle is not the means to true spiritual growth. It's just not. A man, you could go as far as to say a man who's undisciplined in his habits can be light years ahead of the man who looks like he has his life in order in terms of maturity in Christ. Maturity is not measured in years or in your consistency in keeping rules, but in an utter reliance on God and submission to the will of Christ. That's where hope and security comes from. Not in a neat appearance, not in a balanced checkbook, not in a diversified stock portfolio and a track record of wise decisions. The difference, I think, can be found in how the, how the man who has everything together, how does he react when all those plans fall apart? And then the guy who maybe doesn't have everything together, how does he react? You see? You remember the, the, the story of the, the, the tax gatherer and the Pharisee, and they're both praying, right? They're at least in kind of close proximity to each other. One can see the other. The Pharisee's praying to God, and he says, you know, God, thank you for not making me like this tax gatherer. The tax gatherer's prayer, he says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. The Bible says one of those two men went down to his house justified, proven, to have a sincere faith. Which one was it? The one that was all put together? Maturity is not relying upon years of service, but relationship with Christ alone. The rules and restrictions, they have the appearance of wisdom, Paul says, but lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, verse 23. And y'all listen, that, this doesn't mean Paul uh, just dismisses God's law or, the, or that there are no rules for Christian conduct, okay? So I think it's important to pause here for just a, min, just, just a minute and remember that God hates lawlessness, hates lawlessness. God's law, every part of it is a reflection of his character. If you have a hard time with, with loving God's law or some part of it, you're going to have a hard time loving God who made it. So again, Paul isn't dismissing God's law. He's not saying that there are no rules for Christian conduct. In fact, he goes on to give some instructions in chapter 3 in the very next chapter of this book. And he upholds God's commandments for Christian living in all of his writings. You know, Paul's, Paul's not shy about exhorting believers to behave in certain ways. He's addressing the problem of false teachers teaching that you have to follow their program or their manual or their rule book that they made up. It appears to be generally wise, but it's, it's not rooted in Christ and it will not nourish you to spiritual maturity. You know, in other words, early to bed, early to rise makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's good advice. But that Jesus took on flesh to obey and die in your place, that's good news. 
That's good news. You can't apply to heaven with two resumes. It's Christ alone or nothing at all. And having that awareness and exploring that mystery is where all the wisdom and knowledge, life and freedom, and hope and security can be found. Becoming mature in Christ doesn't begin with Christ and then end with your track record. It begins and ends with Christ alone. There are people you know who do not know Jesus, and they don't know how Christianity works. They think they do, but they don't. What we have to be careful of is pretending it's this inner circle thing that, that they must be initiated into by following man-made rules. Are you at least open to the idea that the church as it is now, right, will not be what the church is a thousand years from now? Is that on your radar? Is, is it possible, could it be possible that the church is in its infancy or even its adolescence? Is it possible there's, there's a progression that's going to take place as Christ continues redeeming his creation through filling it with his image bearers for his glory? Is it possible that some of the things we hold on to real tight right now just will be an afterthought later? People will be like, they did that? Christians did that? We have to hold on loosely to those things and not allow those things to be barriers that prevent people from coming and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We can't pretend we somehow deserved what we have and, and then instruct them to go back and shine themselves up so they can deserve it too. That's not how it works, right? When you see the vilest sinner, you, you should see yourself pre-regeneration. The only difference between you and them is Christ's robe of righteousness has already been laid on your shoulders. And it hasn't been on them yet. So there's a hope, there's a prayer there. The only difference between you and a vile sinner that's easy for you to look at and judge, that's on the outside, the only difference between you and them is Jesus traded resumes with you. That's the difference. So what we should hold out to them and show them isn't our resume, but Jesus's. Show them that you, a mere mortal and sinner like them, is holding the record of Jesus. And they can too. They can have his record. Y'all, that's a mystery. That's a mystery. You know, the older I get and the longer I'm a Christian, the more I read God's word, you know what I think our biggest problem is? What, what prevents us from being mature in Christ the way Paul talks about here. Maybe it's some sin in your life you need to repent of 
You need to do that before you leave here this morning, if that's the case. Right? He doesn't leave Christians just to go run off and, and keep playing with sin. He's bringing it to mind. He's putting it in front of your face. And if you're choosing to ignore it and you know it, deal with that before you leave here this morning. Get someone to come and pray with you. All right? You need to deal with that this morning before you leave. But maybe it's not a particular sin in your life that's holding you back from maturing in Christ. You know what I think it is? It's true for me. We can't imagine that anyone could ever love us this much. Because we know we don't. We don't have it in us to be able to love somebody this much. We want people to deserve it. And when they don't, we cut them off. I suggest to you that maturity in Christ is bathing in this mystery of how could somebody do that for me? Our job is not to appear attractive to the world, but it is to reflect the glory of Christ in us, the hope of glory. I think we'd do a better job of that if we could dwell on those things. I pray that would be the case for each of you this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm reminded of that old hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked, Come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That appears to have been written by someone mature in Christ, someone who understood the price that was paid for them. God, may each of us here know your love and be satisfied with you. Keep us from propping up our worth on things that perish and remind us daily to rest in you and grow each of us, Lord, so that 10 years from now we can look back and, and see how you've brought us and how many more you've brought along with us and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.